Even men like Talon Card occasionally make mistakes. This is the Chimera. Launch the attack. Time to go to work. You won't let me get killed, will you? Is that what I was supposed to be doing here? I should have brought my lightsaber. Welcome everybody to Star Wars Bookworms, the interviews. This is the show where we review everything from Dark Horse Comics and Del Rey books. But on this particular show, we have author interviews. And today we have Justin Acklin, who has done the Star Wars, the Clone Wars comic books, um, Defenders of the Lost Temple and the Smuggler's Code. Justin, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, guys. Welcome, Justin. Uh, basically, the first question we kind of like to ask people is, how did you kind of get into Star Wars? Were you like already a fan before you were writing for them, or was it something where you kind of got into the franchise because you were writing for it? Are there actually people who get into it by writing for it? I don't know. I, I, Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I feel, I feel like everybody's a fan of Star Wars, right? Yeah, I hope so. Probably, hope but so. <laughs> some people more so than others. I, um, like, when, were you into it like as a young child, or was it something that kind of developed as you got older? No, I mean, it's been basically my entire life I've been into Star Wars. Uh, uh, Jedi was the first movie I saw in theaters when I was about three years old. So that really kind of set me off on the path that, you know, I've been on for the rest of my life in terms of, you know, being interested in, in sci-fi and, and fantasy and geeky stuff like that. So, you know, Star Wars has always been there, uh, which unfortunately means I never got to, you know, be surprised by the end of Empire because, you know, I, I started my fandom with Jedi, but, you know, it, it's it's been a, a pretty big part of my life since, since I was a kid and I grew up with uh, Star Wars uh, wallpaper border on my, on my bedroom walls and Star Wars toys from Kenner and, you know, everything. It, it's, it's always been a part of my life. I, I never dreamed that I would get to write for it or contribute to the universe in any small way, so that's been, you know, a huge surprise, but it's, you know, it, I, I've always been a Star Wars fan. Cool. So do you have a favorite Star Wars film? I love all the original trilogy. Even, uh, it's funny, like, I saw something, you know, a few years ago when, you know, someone started pointing out all the problems that are in Jedi, and you see that, and you're like, oh, yeah, I guess that is kind of problematic. <laughs> but even so, I love it. But I, I think I would have to go, if I had to choose just one, I'd probably go New Hope, just because it, it's the purest just kind of adventure and, and humor and action. And, you know, other than cool lightsaber battles, which it doesn't really have, it's basically got everything that I want out of Star Wars anyway. Yeah, I think more as I watch the movies more, I'm starting to come to the conclusion that the that A New Hope is is my favorite as well. It's so good. It kind of fluctuates, I, I think. Like mm-hmm. I think like any fan, you probably like different ones at different times, but that seems yeah. to be the one I keep coming back to. Yeah, and and certainly you know there's a lot of death in, in Empire, and, and and you know they're all great and <laughs> Jedi is fun, but and and you hear it said a lot, but just that that shocks. New Hope of Luke looking at the twin sons, and you know it's just—it's so powerful, and it's—it's it's such a great film. Yeah, I guess I fall into the minority there since Return of the Jedi is my favorite, and everybody seems to hate Ewoks for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> There's, isn't it like if you were born before 1986? 
83 or 82 or something, you, you paid Ewoks, and if you were born after, you love them? Well, that would fall that appropriately, since I was born in 85. I like Ewoks. I had a, a stuffed Papalu as a kid that was a constant companion. So did you have a specific character from the movies that you that you kind of related with the most, or that was your favorite? I don't, I, I guess Luke growing up. Um, I didn't really think about it in terms of, you know, which characters I liked. I mean, it was sort of, you know, the total package for me. I was never someone who gravitated towards, you know, one character over another. I mean, I don't even know if I could name, you know, my, my favorite Star Wars character if I had to, had to figure it out. So, Justin, where would you like to see the new movies go with the story, or do you have any preference? I would say that, and it, I'm sure it, it's not necessarily a popular opinion, but I don't want them to necessarily tread the same ground that the existing expanded universe stories do. You know, it, it's, I like surprises. I li- <laughs> I'd like to go see a movie without knowing the entire story beforehand, so... I don't think it really behooves anyone to, you know, go see a movie knowing everything that's going to happen in it. So, I, you know, it's they've got talented filmmakers on board, and, you know, I'd like to see them find their own story and tell it. And, you know, I, I love the idea of continuity, and, I, you know, I think it's cool that Star Wars has so much, you know, continuity established and so many stories they've told, but I, I, I wouldn't want to see, you know, talented filmmakers being constrained by that, I want I, w- I want to go there and be surprised and, and find out you know what their vision is of, of what happens you know in the the future of the uh, the Star Wars universe. Have you been yeah. following the expanded universe uh, at all, like as a fan, or are you kind of more just into the movies? I'm mostly into the movies. I've got a fairly strong knowledge of what happens, just because uh, in my life before. You know, I became a writer of Star Wars comics. I spent many years as the editor of Toy Fair magazine, which was a magazine all about uh, action figures and a lot about Star Wars action figures, obviously. And so, you know, we would frequently be talking about new Star Wars toys or Star Wars toys that people wanted to see. And so there's frequent uh, allusions to the the expanded universe and the solo twins and, you know, all this different stuff. So I'm pretty conversant in what happened, but I'm not necessarily steeped in it in terms of, you know, having read a lot of it. So how did you get involved with writing comics for Dark Horse and then specifically for Star Wars? You know, I started writing comics uh, several years ago, and I I did an original graphic novel that came out called Hero House, uh, which was about a superhero for or, excuse me, a college fraternity for superheroes. And then I ended up pitching uh, Dark Horse on a short story called Shoot First, and that ran as an eight-page story in their anthology at the time, which was uh, called MySpace Dark Horse Presents, because it ran on MySpace and <laughs> was later you know, collected into, into print volumes. And you know, I, I really enjoyed working on that story, and I started working with uh, my editor at Dark Horse, uh, David Marshall, on trying to turn that into a larger miniseries. And we spent the next basically four years, give or, you know, on and off, uh, trying to lock down the story for that and, and find the right art team and, and all that stuff. So 
fast forward to 2013 and you know that's it's finally about to come out in October uh, shoot first is a four issue miniseries but in between as as we were working on it and as we were trying to get uh, everything in place you know it was just taking a while to come together and Dave reached out to me and he said you know while we're working on this and while we're trying to get everything right would you like to try uh, your hand at writing some Star Wars stories and I said of course because I'm a huge Star Wars fan <laughs> so that was, you know, it, even though the Star Wars stories are coming out well before Shoot First uh, comes out, they came about as a result of having worked on that and, you know, Dark Horse seeing what I was capable of based on that. So the comics that you've written so far for Star Wars have been Clone Wars comics. Were you, I know you said that you were a fan mostly of the movies. Had you been watching the TV series? Were you, were you into that as well? I had definitely caught it on and off, but I wasn't watching it religiously. Um, I'm at that weird... Like, I've got kids, and so I'm at that weird stage where I feel weird watching cartoons that I can't watch with the kids. <laughs> you know, you only get a certain amount of grown-up TV time per day, and it feels weird to watch a, a cartoon with without the kids there, and it was just a little bit above their level at that point because uh, they were a little bit young for it. Uh, and, you know, I, I loved what I saw. I, I love, you know, the world that they had put together. And especially the way that, you know, the, uh, the clone troopers kind of came into their own as it went along as, you know, their own characters and the way they were able to differentiate them. So that was one of the main thing, influences that I drew on if, uh, for the first book, definitely. And that was uh, Defenders of the Lost Temple. So how much information were you given about the direction of the TV series when you were writing your stories? Did they help you as far as, like, understanding the characters and where they were at or anything like that? No, I mean, the only direction I was given was you set a story within, you know, the confines of the time period of the Clone Wars and have it be appropriate for children not necessarily aimed at kids, but, you know, just nothing that, you know, uh, it wouldn't be inappropriate for an eight- or nine-year-old to read. And that was it. So <laughs> it's one of those situations where it's almost more difficult because you're not given parameters. Like, I really had to sit down and figure out, you know, what's the Star Wars story that I want to tell because I can do it, you know, I can make it about the main characters, I can make it a side story that's taking place off you know, in some far-flung corner of the universe that, you know, we don't see in the cartoon. And, you know, it, eventually it came down to, I had to figure out, you know, what it is about Star Wars that speaks to me as a fan, which is something you never really have to think about as a fan. You know, but as a writer, I had to say, you know, what is it about Star Wars that I enjoy, that I want to see in these stories, that I, you know, if I'm going to create something, I want it to be something that, you know, it is quintessentially Star Wars to me. So I... That was the only direction I was given. And then, you know, once the stories, once I came up with them, you know, everything is run through uh, through Lucasfilm and through their continuity gurus just to make sure that, you know, it doesn't contradict anything. It doesn't, you know, go against, you know, any guidelines that they have in place. But, you know, they were very amenable. We, ha we had very few notes back from them. Uh, you know, it just, it was a very extremely smooth process. One of the cool things I, I think about your Clone Wars comics is that now that the show's been canceled, 
these are kind of like the last or like the latest stories that we've gotten from that Clone Wars universe. Were you surprised with the cancellation of the series? Did you know it was coming? Were you kind of in the know about that? Or did that no, surprise had, you like the rest of us? I had no inside knowledge of anything as I was working on these. Um, not only did I not know that Clone Wars was being canceled, but, and I hope I don't, it's okay if I go into spoilers on my books and the show. Yeah, definitely. Oh, we're, we, we do full spoilers for, our, for all okay. of our episodes, so yeah, go ahead. Full spoilers then. Um, I invented a character in Defenders of the Lost Temple, uh, which is a Padawan named uh, Renax Omani, and her fate at the end of the book uh, mirrors, but is not 100% exactly what happens to uh, Ahsoka, and I had no idea that was going to happen <laughs> in the in the cartoon either. So that wasn't like an intentional, like you know, foreshadowing or anything like that. It just it just happened to turn out that way. Yeah, I think when we reviewed that comic, that actually came up. We were talking about the similarities. Yeah. So yeah, that's it's interesting that it was just a coincidence. I thought it might have had been on purpose. No, that would <laughs> that would have been cool if it was uh, planted in there as an Easter egg or something. But I think it was just a case of. Probably both I and the Clone Wars creators realized we had a situation at the end of our stories where we had invented a character who wasn't around in the original trilogy and didn't necessarily want to see them get Order 66, and we're like, well, what can we do with them? And we came to similar conclusions. So is there a character from the Clone Wars that you would have loved to have written a story about? I don't know. I I think I, I hit on the ones that... I mean, my favorite prequels character in general is Obi-Wan and so it was, it was really cool to get to write Obi-Wan for uh, the Smuggler's Code as, as the main character and get to work with him and you know it, it's an interesting twist I don't want to say twist but it's an interesting version of him in that I, def, I didn't want to be beholden to you know, Obi-Wan at a... Like, he changes a lot through the series, and I didn't want it to be necessarily like, oh, this is Obi-Wan as he is between, you know, episodes two and episode six when this happens. You know, I, I wanted to sort of write more of my own take on Obi-Wan. So what happens in, in Smuggler's Code is that uh, they're vac- uh, he and Ahsoka and Anakin are vacationing on a resort planet, which... I had never seen a resort planet in Star Wars, so I figured I would <laughs> add something like that to the canon. And he encounters a, a criminal uh, from his youth, someone who had gotten away from him. And he sort of, after admonishing Anakin for being, you know, sort of, uh, you know, a loose cannon and always flying off on his own, Obi-Wan then uh, goes and flies off on his own and, and runs after this criminal because he had made a, a promise as a youth that he would take him in by himself. And that, doing that and putting uh, Obi-Wan back in sort of a mental state where he's almost reliving his youth, you know, he, he's picking up where he left off, you know, 20-something years ago. And so that, that gave me an opportunity to write Obi-Wan who, you know, it's still, it's still the Obi-Wan that we know, but, you know, he's acting a little bit differently, acting a little bit more rashly, and, you know, it, it, allowed, it to, allowed me to take it in some interesting uh, character directions for him. Cool. And so speaking of Obi-Wan, um, 
Are you going to read or have you read the book by John Jackson Miller, the Kenobi book? I haven't read it. I'm definitely interested in it. I mean, he, he is one of the most interesting, you know, characters from either trilogy. And, you know, anything that's going to explore that sort of great unexplored, you know, uh, swath of his history, I think, is, is definitely going to be pretty cool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that one. So one of the things about these stories is they're kind of in a different format. They're put in these digests. They're not the your typical, you know, weekly comics. Um, and they're definitely geared more towards children. Yeah. When, when you were writing these stories, were you keeping that in mind, like you were specifically trying to target children, or did you have the adult readers in mind as well? I mean, I definitely wanted to do something that adults could enjoy. I think that... Um, Smuggler's Code, you know, for all that it's about, you know, criminals and, and smugglers and, and, you know, the, the criminal underworld and stuff like that, it's probably a little bit more targeted at kids. Uh, I just, with that one, like, I basically just wanted to do, like, a really fun, colorful, like, action-packed Star Wars story. And, you know, I mean, with, with both of these... I, I wasn't necessarily setting out to write two children, but I've got um, two kids, and my, my oldest daughter is seven. And so I definitely had in mind, like, you know, I want to write something that, you know, she can read and her classmates can read, and I'm not going to be embarrassed to, you know, to hand to a child of that age. You know, I, I, I don't want anything that's going to be too dark or too violent in there. But, you know, especially with um, Defenders of the Lost Temple... You know, I, I did set out to tell a story of, you know, that has some, I don't want to sound, you know, hoity-toity, but you know, some, some depth and, you know, some, some interesting character things. And, and uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really pleased with how that one came out. And, uh, you know, I, I love them both, but I, I, I really like uh, Defenders and especially, and I did see some reviews that pointed it out, like, it brings up some questions about, you know, the, the structure of the Jedi Order and things that I have really haven't seen, you know, story, Star Wars stories aimed at adults tackle too much. And so to have it in a, in a book for kids was, you know, kind of, it was a cool thing to accomplish. Great. So I think what we want to do is we kind of want to talk about each one a little bit more in depth and maybe ask you some of the questions that we even had when we read them. Sure. Um, so the first one is, the art from, we're going to talk about Defenders of the Lost Temple first. The art kind of reminded us of the cartoon Teen Titans. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Um, so how much input did you have in the style of the artwork that was used? Um, you know, the, assembling the art team for the books was handled by the editorial team at Dark Horse uh, at, for, with Dave Marshall. I had actually worked with uh, the artist on Defenders of the Lost Temple uh, before. Uh, ben Bates did the short story for Shoot First that ran in MySpace Dark Horse Presents. So I had gotten a chance to work with him before. I knew that he was a talented artist. Um, and, I, I, you know, I didn't know that he was going to be working on the story. And then, you know, Dave emailed me one day. He said, oh, we got Ben to do the book. And I'm like, oh, that's going to be great. You know, he, he brings his own style to it. But, it, I mean, he definitely has a, he has a definite... Uh, anime and manga influence, which, you know, Teen Titans also draws on. And I know that, you know, I, 
when I showed it to some friends, they said that it also reminded them of the, the Genji Tartakovsky Clone Wars cartoon as well, which, you know, I always loved the visual style of that. So to be able to uh, work on something that brought some of that to the new series I thought was great as well. And one of the elements of the story was this uh, gauntlet of Kresh, the younger. Mm-hmm. And I, I noticed that the name from that, the, the name Kresh is actually from like the old Tales of the Jedi comics. Was this something where you put that in there on purpose because you were a fan of that series, or was it just due to a lot of Wikipedia study? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have to confess that, like I said, I, I'm not... I'm not 100% steeped in a lot of Expanded Universe stuff. I haven't read a lot of the comics. And honestly, like, that's when, you know, Dark Horse is looking for new authors. I know that they've said that that's one of the things that they're completely okay with. Like, they don't want necessarily someone who's going to be weighed down by the minutia and looking to, you know, tell a story that's 100% owes something to the previous expanded universe stories rather than just, you know, be able to tell a Star Wars story. So that wasn't necessarily a, a weakness, hopefully, but but it did involve a lot of Wikipedia research just to make sure that, you know, everything was, was lining up. And, I mean, basically with the story, I needed, you know, a MacGuffin. I needed uh, an artifact for them to be uh, searching for in the temple. And... I figured, okay, well, let me check Wikipedia and see what kind of, you know, Sith artifacts there there are that exist, and if there's not a suitable one, then I'll make one up. And I happened to find um, the Gauntlet of Crush the Younger, which was from the, I believe, the Knights of the Old Republic series. And, you know, I read the entry, and I saw that it basically ended its life, you know, being guarded by the sect of Jedi on this uninhabited moon, and that was the last anyone had heard of it. And I'm like, oh, well, that's perfect. You know, they, the Jedi could have just left it there in this temple guarded by booby traps, and that can you know, be where our story picks up. So in this particular story, you had a misguided clone that idolized the Death Watch. Um, why, do you, why do you think a clone would openly support a group like this that were basically enemies of the Republic? Um, for him... All the all the all the clones that are in the story, and there's four of them. I try and uh, get the point across a little bit that they're kind of misfit clones. Like they're not necessarily the the best clones, which is why they're not on the front lines. They're they've been sent on this mission that no one really knows whether or not there's actually going to be an artifact here. So it's okay for them to send sort of like the second rate clones to to check it out. So Horns, which is the clone that idolizes the Death Watch. For him, it's not so much about their sort of political beliefs as it is they represent for him sort of the pinnacle of, you know, being a Mandalorian warrior and being kind of a, you know, a badass. And, and so he, he responds to them in that way. He might, you know, I don't even think that he, their, their politics and their, you know, the fact that they're technically their enemies are entering into it for him. It's just kind of, you know, like... A, you know, uh, someone of Irish descent, you know, idolizing Celtic warriors, you know. It's like the pinnacle of, of what his people can uh, can be in terms of being a badass. Yeah, and once he was confronted with it, it was good to see that when Pre Vizsla offered him a spot on his team, basically, and he couldn't do it, he couldn't kill the Jedi to do it, it was good to see that it was a pretty shallow, I guess, love for the, the Death Watch. 
Exactly. For, <laughs> I, I think it's definitely all about sort of puffing himself up for him. Like he, I think even at the beginning of the story when he's talking about, you know, the Death Watch and how, how he thinks they're cool, I, even at that point in the story, if he had been given the chance, I don't think he would actually have, have joined up. It, it's all talk for him. So the question that I have is, was Glitch Force-sensitive? That's a really interesting question. When I went back and looked at my very early notes on the story, the original intention was always that he was a little bit Force-sensitive. And that was how I went into it originally and how we pitched it to uh, Lucasfilm. And one of the only notes that they came back with us uh, on the story was, can we make it a little more ambiguous about whether or not he actually is Force-sensitive? And in the process of that and thinking about that and getting that note back, what I came to the conclusion of was that he actually should not be Force-sensitive. This is something that it's central to who he is and his, his identity, his, his vision of himself is that you know, he feels that he has a connection to the Force, and, you know, he looks up to the Jedi, and he ideally would like to be a Jedi, but I don't think that he actually is Force-sensitive. Well, you did a great job keeping it ambiguous, because I think, like, I was kind of leaning toward that, that he wasn't, but there was, mm. it, it always seemed like maybe there was at least a little bit of Force-sensitivity, maybe that if he was trained, so I was kind of interested, just since you were the author you know, if that was your intention, that he did have it or not. I guess you could say that it, it certainly still could be either way, because, you know, as originally conceived, he was. My current opinion is that he's not. But, I mean, I think the point of, you know, what, what the conversation that he has with Renax is that whether or not, you know, he's Force-sensitive or, you know, could learn to feel the Force or whatever, you know, every living thing is connected to the Force. And so, you know being a Jedi, being Force-sensitive is not necessarily more important or more special than just being a living being. You know, we're all connected to the Force. And, I mean, for me, I've had people ask me, you know, at the end of the story, uh, again, full spoilers, Glitch uh, appears to die when the temple collapses. And then, at the very end, there's an epilogue, and you realize that he has... And as he was falling through the temple, he got his hands on the gauntlet, which protects its wearer from all physical harm. And he survived the, uh, the collapse, and he's kind of, he emerges from the rubble, and, you know, apparently he's going to live life down there. And I had someone ask me, well, you know, earlier in the story, when uh, the Jedi Master Atria, Atrilla, you know, just even comes close to the gauntlet, she's overtaken with, you know, its dark side energies. She can't even come near it. You know, and how come that didn't affect Glitch at all? And my perception of that is that Glitch, you know, is not actually Force-sensitive. So it's okay for him to, you know, be in contact with a dark side object like that for at least a brief period of time. It's not going to affect him because he doesn't have that sensitivity. So in that way, it's, ir it's almost ironic because what ends up saving his life is the fact that you know, he's not Force-sensitive. He just is who he is. And if he had been Force-sensitive, you know, he might not have been able to survive that or it might have warped him or changed him to the dark side. And so he was kind of just, I guess in a way it seemed like he was a little bit stranded 
because uh, the rest of his group had left. In your mind, did he find his way back to the Republic Army, or is he kind of still out there? And maybe we could find out more about him eventually. I definitely left it intentionally. I mean, I don't know if I'll ever get a chance to return to him or if any other authors did, but I, I wanted to leave it, you know, that in the same way that it's fun for me to kind of pick up someone else's toys from the Star Wars universe and be able to use them. If anyone ever wants to, you know, pick up Glitch again, as far as I'm concerned, he's still living down in that valley. You know, I showed that there's plant life and animal life down there, so, and fresh water. He should be able to survive down there indefinitely. And, you know, he's down there, sort of this kind of weird hermit former clone trooper who, you know, feels a connection to the Force, and, you know, he, he might have more stories to tell in the future if, if someone ever so chooses. So, is there anything about this particular comic that you were particularly proud of or something that you want to share that maybe people sometimes overlook? Um, well, like I said before, I thought it was interesting. Like, it, it brings up some things about the Jedi Order that always kind of, at least, you know, in the pre, in the prequels when we started to learn more about the Jedi, kind of struck me in a weird way and brings it up in, a, in an in-canon source, which I think is interesting and, and cool that Lucasfilm let that happen, which is, you know, uh, Renax, the reason that she bonds with Glitch is they're both, they both feel like their destinies are kind of being controlled for them in terms of, you know, Glitch is this clone trooper who feels that his destiny is to be, you know, a Jedi or to, you know, or to study the Force. And Renax is, you know, a Jedi warrior, but, you know, really has no interest in being a warrior and points out that no one, you know, ever gave her a choice. You know, Jedi are recruited as basically infants and, you know, within a few years are conscripted into fighting in these battles. And that's weird to me. And <laughs> it's, weird. it's weird to Renax. And ultimately, you know, she comes to the conclusion that, you know, it, it's not the right thing for her. And she's, she decides to, to walk away from the Jedi order in the end of the, of the book. Well, we want to move on to the smuggler's code and, this question that I have for you is something that I noticed early on and I really wanted to find out the answer to, so I'm glad we're getting to talk to you. Um, so the art for Smuggler's Code felt very Disney-ish. Like, there was a lot of Lilo and Stitch sort of things and Hercules uh, nuances that I caught. Was that a coincidence? Or <laughs> um, I think it might be a coincidence. I mean, it... Eduardo Ferrara, who's the artist, you know, is a really unique artist. He, he didn't try to ape... I mean, it's clearly Clone Wars when you look at it, but I don't think he tried to ape the style of the show. You know, he really kind of struck his own visual note on it, and it looks great. And the colors on both these books are by uh, Michael Atiyah, and I might be pronouncing that wrong because it's one of those... I've worked with him on a few books now, but I've never actually heard his name said out loud. <laughs> but he's, you know, a spectacular colorist. And, you know, the, the uh, you know, what we were going for with Smuggler's Code was to get this sort of, like, very vibrant, very colorful jungle-slash-beach kind of world in a way that you know, would make it visually unique in the Star Wars universe. And I think that combined with 
you know, Eduardo's very stylistic art kind of might have made it feel, you know, uh, reminiscent of, of some Disney stuff. But it, it wasn't, uh, you know, the, the marching orders that I gave. So in this story, we have the smuggler character, Rook Price. And mm-hmm. he, he definitely comes across as uh, a little bit kind of like the Han Solo type character. In the story, his home world was never stated, I don't think. Did you kind of imagine him as Karelian? I did kind of imagine him as Karelian. It's not stated, so it's left ambiguous. Um, but it definitely, I mean, you're, you're definitely supposed to have, you know, visions of Han Solo come to mind when, when you meet Rook. And the, the main impetus of the story when I was first brainstorming these for me was, like, the way that, you know, Luke and, and Obi-Wan and crew meet Han Solo, like, he should not have necessarily ended up working out as well for them as he should have, you know. He was definitely a scoundrel and, and you know, only interested in money, and he takes a heroic turn and he ends up being very altruistic in the end, but there was nothing stopping him from, you know, selling them out to, you know, the the Empire, you know. They were taking a basically a big chance when they when they uh, hired him. So I, my, you know, thought process was basically, you know, what if, you know, Obi-Wan hires a smuggler and, you know, you think it's going to be that kind of Han Solo process again, but it ends up working out much worse for him than it did in the, uh, in the original trilogy. So that, that was the starting point for, for that story. Um, so really quick, I'm going to ask you, how do you say the um, bad guy's name? Uh, I pronounce it in my mind, uh, Timat Zot. Okay, so I'll say it like that. Okay. Because <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to say it. Well, okay, first of all, how did you come up with the name? Because that's fun. Um, well, there, that's an Easter egg for you. A, a lot of the names in Smuggler's Code, I'm, I'm sure everyone who writes Star Wars has the temptation to do this, but... I based a lot of them on uh, names of my friends and names of, of loved ones and sort of took people's names and smushed them together. Um, so Zoat is uh, for my friend Zach Oat, who was the editor of Toy Fair magazine before I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, Timot is shorthand for uh, a bunch of uh, former uh, Wizard and Toy Fair guys uh, email with each other a lot. And if the conversation starts going off the rails, uh, people started to say, uh, take me off the thread, and that eventually got uh, abbreviated to T-M-O-T-T. And so that became uh, awesome. the name of Timot Zot. <laughs> that's very cool, actually. <laughs> I think that's awesome that, that some of you writers kind of, you know, put your friends' names and stuff like that into there. I know some of the authors have done, like, you know, some different fans and stuff have, have found their names in different works. I think that's really cool. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'm not going to say specifically which, but I named a character in Defenders of the Lost Temple after my daughters because I figured that, you know, if you get a chance to write Star Wars and you don't name a character after your daughters, then you're, a ca- uh, you know, not a great dad. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Rook Price, uh, who you mentioned before, I stole almost completely from uh, my wife's name because uh, her first and middle name is uh, Brooke Price. And I thought that if you 
change Brooke to Rook, then that makes a really badass smuggler's name. Like, she has nothing else in common with the character. I just thought that her name really worked really well with her. Cool. So that's, that's a little behind the scenes stuff about how you name a Star Wars character. Um, all right. So for, for Timot, how did you find the species for him? And then why did you choose it? Choosing what species the character should be is one of the most kind of in-depth processes, you know, for the whole thing. Like, I have ideas in mind, and then you kind of have to, like, look at Wikipedia and think, like, oh, do these, uh, does this species ever speak basic? You know, are they inherently good-natured, or some of them go bad? You know, would they be this this profession or not? Um you know, I just, I wanted something really, you know, bestial and, you know, kind of tough looking for, for Timot. So, you know, I, obviously I remember the, the Shistavanian from the, you know, the original cantina scene. So, you know, that came to mind and then Eduardo took it and sort of made it this like, you know, super burly kind of werewolf guy, you know, even more tough looking and monstrous than previous uh, Shistavanians we've seen. I don't know. I just pronounced that species two different ways because I don't know the correct way. <laughs> yeah, I was happy to see that you used that species just because I had remembered that visually from the, the Gendi Tartakovsky series, they had used a Jedi of that same species. And yes. I thought, that especially the cover of this comic with him facing off against Obi-Wan is actually one of my favorite comic book covers of all time. I think it looks awesome. Oh, that's so, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, so I, th- I thought that was that was a perfect choice for the species. I thought it was really cool. Thanks. Yeah, it's I I definitely like, you know, to use those original, like, you know, cantina species because, you know, they, they were just so cool looking and so distinctive. So in the story, we find out that, that Timo, he actually, I guess, killed somebody that Obi-Wan was protecting mm-hmm. in, in his youth. Um but we don't really find out very much detail at all about that story. Was this something that you had kind of in your head, like a, a specific story that happened, or is just not really, you just kind of, you know, threw that in there for the plot? I mean, I left it intentionally vague just because Obi-Wan's past is so jam-packed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I didn't want to try and figure out specifically, like, oh, you know, this is a story that would have happened in between when you know, he left the Jedi Order and when he came back here and, you know, like, it's, there's, there's so many specifics laid down in there already. I figured it's best if I leave this vague. It's more about, you know, what his motivation is right now and the fact that it did happen a long time ago, you know, puts him in a certain frame of mind and makes him act in a certain way that he wouldn't act as, you know, Jedi Master Obi-Wan under normal circumstances. Cool. So should we, um, in the end, you know, should we feel bad for Rook or was he just getting what was coming to him and we should just be glad that he's, you know, finally coming to justice? <laughs> well, that's for everyone to decide for themselves. Um, <laughs> now, I, for me, I think Rook is a tragic figure in that he's just unable to break himself out of his old patterns. Like, I, I think he gets what's coming to him. I don't think we should feel bad that he's going to jail. But I think that it's just sad that, you know, he couldn't see beyond himself to see, like, that, yes, you know, Obi-Wan, you know, is offering him a way out. You know, he, he's so used to scheming and so used to trying to figure out, you know, the angle 
and how to turn any situation into, you know, the way to make maximum money for Rook Price that he can't even conceive of, a war, you know, a life for himself where he's not doing that. So he's tragic to me in that sense, but I don't think that, you know, you should feel bad that he's going to jail because, you know, he's a criminal and he betrayed Obi-Wan and, and we like Obi-Wan. And before we before we stop uh, talking about the Smuggler's Code, there was one thing in the comic that that stuck out to me that I found humorous, and I thought maybe it was kind of tongue in cheek. So I wanted to bring it up, but there are la- are there fish with freaking lasers on their heads. <laughs> <laughs> so we have these saber, saber fish. fish that actually can deflect lightsaber blades. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you came up with that concept? I will say that my prediction is if anything that I invented for the Star Wars universe in these two books gets picked up by any other author, I think it'll be Saberfish, because <laughs> I can't believe that's never been done in Star Wars before. Um, I, I was literally, I mean, you know, part of the thing, you know, I wanted to set this in a, sto- in a setting where we haven't seen Star Wars stories set before, and, you know, so we have this kind of tropical paradise that you know, has kind of a dark underbelly to it. And so it's a new world, it's a new setting, so, you know, we needed new, you know, kind of creatures for it to inhabit it. And I can't even remember what I was thinking of, but at some point I realized, you know, you've got swordfish that have, you know, noses that are like swords. You know, why aren't there saberfish that have noses that are like lightsabers? And I, and I immediately said, that it needs to go in the story. So it's... You know, I, I thought it would be a cool visual. I mean, it's always cool, you know, to see Jedi having to kind of operate underwater and, you know, use the use lightsabers underwater and then combine that with, you know, this, this enemy that has kind of their own, like, natural lightsaber and is able to kind of, you know, sword fight with them in this weird, you know, animal versus human way. And I thought that would be a pretty cool visual. And, in fact, the only... One of the only notes that we got back from Lucasfilm on the story when we submitted the outline was I'm looking forward to seeing what the saberfish <laughs> sword fight looks like. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm pleased with, uh, with how it came out. Yeah, I agree. I think that saberfish should be in the sequel trilogy. I agree too. <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit about Shoot First because we know that's something else that you've been working on. Yeah, that's uh, the next thing that I've got coming out. The The first issue hits on October 16th in comic shops, and uh, I'm very, very excited about it. It's, uh, the, it's uh, the first creator-owned series that I'm doing for Dark Horse. So it's uh, owned and created by myself and the artist uh, Nicholas Daniel Selma, who has previously worked on uh, the Tomb Raider prequel comic book for Dark Horse. And so the concept of Shoot First uh, is basically it's a team of kind of militant atheists who take on supernatural creatures that they don't believe in. And nice. it's, it sounds weird because, you know, how can they be fighting things that they believe in? And it's, you know, they believe that they're fighting something. They just, you know, if they're fighting a demon they don't believe that it's actually, you know, a, a religious kind of demon. They, they basically, in, in the world that they inhabit, kind of all supernatural creatures are these creatures that they refer to as outside actors. And 
it's basically these self-evolving creatures that feed off of human psychic energy and specifically, you know, our, our belief energy. So they, you know, take the form of, of creatures that, you know, humans believe in and throughout our history have been, you know, sort of manipulating us uh, to believe certain things. And now Shoot is trying to prevent them from triggering kind of a global apocalypse uh, that, they've, that they're engineering uh, and they use the power of their own uh, disbelief as filtered through sci-fi guns to uh, stop the outside actors. And uh, SHOOT is an acronym that stands for Secular Humanist Occult Obliteration Task Force, which is really ridiculous, which is why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and you said you've been working on this since when? Since about 2009. Okay. And it's finally seen the light of day, and I, I couldn't be more thrilled uh, the art that Nico is turning in is just spectacular. Every issue, they're fighting a different uh, outside actor or group. Uh, in the first act, first issue, they're fighting uh, Bottle Gin. Uh, in the third issue, they're fighting... Uh, they call themselves the Folklorics. So it's basically a bunch of fairies and elves and dragons and stuff like that. And... You know, so it's there, there's something different in every issue, but there's uh, an overarching plot, uh, you know, for this, you know, of them trying to, you know, avert this uh, end of the world. And there's a lot of interesting characters in there, a lot of, a lot of uh, twists and turns. And I, I, I'm very, very proud of how it's coming out. I'm very excited for people to get a chance to read it. So how can it, people find it? Is it going to be uh, just like at your local comic book shop, or is it going to also be available Dark Horse Digital? Both, yes. It's uh, in the current issue of previews, or the, the August cover date issue of previews, so you can go to your comic shop and ask them to order a copy for you. And like I said, it'll be in comic shops on August 16th, excuse me, October 16th. And uh, it'll also be on Dark Horse Digital either on or around that date. So, you know, you can get it on, on the app as well. And we're going to, uh, Nico and I are both going to be at New York Comic Con, and we're going to be uh, signing copies of it uh, right before it gets released. So if you're going to be in New York for, for the show, then definitely stop by the Dark Horse booth whenever we end up doing that signing and, and come check it out. Nice. I will be at New York Comic Con, so I'll definitely oh, nice. stop by and say hi to you guys. Awesome. That'd be great. I didn't know you were going to New York Comic Con. <laughs> you don't tell me everything. <laughs> you should come. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's it's a really. Have you been to New York Comic Con before, Justin? I have. Yeah, it's okay. it is a good show. Yeah, it's it's pretty big. It's starting to get to be. I mean, it's obviously not as big as San Diego, but it's starting to attract some of the bigger, you know, companies and bigger names, celebrities and stuff. So it's if you're on the East Coast, it's definitely a lot easier to get to than San Diego, and probably not nearly as crowded. Cool. Well, um, is there anything else that you're you're wor working on right now that you'd like to talk about, or maybe any chance that you'd be doing any more Star Wars comics? Uh, there's nothing in the cards right now. I would certainly love to do more Star Wars. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure what the, what the future holds for that, but I'm always open to that. Uh, Shoot First is the main thing right now, and I also have uh, a series I did for Dark Horse called Akaniro, which was an adaptation of uh, an online game from Spicy Horse Games, and that was a three-issue miniseries that just wrapped up, and there's a hardcover collection coming in December. Cool. 
Um, so do you see yourself going to the next Star Wars celebration in Anaheim? I hope so. Yeah, I, I've actually, as many conventions as I've, as I've been to, I've never been to a celebration. And, you know, to go to the one right before, you know, Episode 7 comes out, I can't imagine anything uh, being more exciting than that. So I definitely hope to try and make it out for that. How about you guys? Oh, definitely. I know we're going. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be, it's on the other side of the country for me, so, but I... I don't want to miss a Star Wars celebration, especially not this one. So I'll be going no matter what. Yeah. I, I wonder if they're going to start doing them every year since they're going to do theatrical releases every year. Yeah, oh, they, no. they've, they could. A lot of people are, are speculating that they're going to bounce them back and forth from the two Disney you know, areas, so uh-huh. Orlando and Anaheim, every other year. That'd be cool. So, yeah, that would so, be fine with me whenever they're in Orlando because it'll only take me like an hour to get there and I can just stay on Disney property. So, um, thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me. I, I, it was a lot of fun to be able to talk uh, kind of specific questions about the books. I haven't had a chance to do that yet. Yeah, I was really uh, looking forward to having you on because I had read both of these comics. Actually, I probably wouldn't have read them because um, they did look more like they were like, you know, kids' books. Mm-hmm. But, but I read them so we could review review them on the show, and I actually really liked them a lot. So I saw, I think you had actually replied to something um, on Facebook or something when, when we reviewed the first comic. Mm-hmm. Um, the guy that was on with me had never read a comic before. It was his very That's first right. comic. That's and, right, yeah. And you, you had made a comment about you know being flattered that it was his very first comic. So So I saw that, and we appreciated that you had, you know, replied to us so I, w- I definitely wanted to reach out to you and try to have you on the show so we could discuss the these comics because I, I really did enjoy them awesome I really appreciate that and uh, I, I'll say that you know if any of your listeners have any other questions anything they want to ask about it you can always find me on Twitter uh, at Justin Acklin A-C-L-I-N so for all of our listeners as always if you want to get in touch with us you can find us on Twitter we're at SW Bookworms. And feel free to send us an email with any questions, comments. Then our email address is StarWarsBookworms at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. Make sure to like us there, share us with your friends. And we do a lot of our latest updates on books and comic news on our Facebook page. So we actually do different things on there than we show on Twitter. So it's very good to follow us on both. And feel free to... Also, leave us a review on iTunes and rate us, um, preferably positive, but any review and rating that you leave actually helps us show up higher in the iTunes um, catalog, I guess we could call it. And Aaron, where can people follow you? Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my Twitter handle is at A-V-Goins, A-V-G-O-I-N-S. And if you want to follow me, I'm at IceColdPenguin. So thanks again for joining us on this special interview edition of Star Wars Bookworms. August is actually a very packed month for us. We're going to be doing two more shows this month. Our next show is going to be covering Star Wars Crucible by Troy Dinning. So be looking for that a little bit later on in the month. All right. Thanks again, Justin. Yeah. We really appreciate it. 
It's awesome having Absolutely. you on. Uh, yeah, I, really, I, I really hope that you can uh, write some more of those Clone Wars comics. I think it'd be really cool. Um, and some of the characters that you kind of left open-ended, you know, I'd love to see them show up in some other materials. <laughs> Thanks, me too. I mean, it's... I definitely, you know, I liked the characters I created enough that I'm like, I'm just going to leave them right here just in case, Yeah, you know, the, the opportunity arises. Yeah, that's cool that you, you had the, the foresight to, to kind of leave some stuff open-ended. I think a lot of times authors, you know, kind of want to write the end of their own characters, but the fact that you're willing to leave some of these characters open-ended that, you know, maybe another author might pick it up, that's that's cool. Yeah. No, I've said, you know before that like writing star wars feels like participating in like this giant like role-playing game where you get to kind of like rewrite the rules you know what i mean like you kind of like pick up what other people have done and then you can leave your own little mark and it's it's a really kind of unique kind of feeling yeah i like i that's one of the huge reasons why i'm into star wars the way that i am is because of how unique that is and i think that's kind of like when you when you start talking about these new movies coming out and, you know, people that have been reading all these novels that are set, you know, that are probably going to get overridden by these these new movies, you know, that people start to kind of get up in arms like, oh, no, I don't want to lose my, I don't want to lose my Jason and Anakin Solo or Jaina Solo. <laughs> so it'll be really think, interesting over the next few years to just kind of see how that changes the way that Star Wars has always been. Yeah, and no, it'll be, it's going to be fascinating. I, I wonder if they're going to find a way to sort of, kind of dance in between it, but, you know, I don't know. Ultimately, yeah. it comes down to what they feel makes the best story, I guess. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I actually like what you said about not wanting to sort of go down the same path as, you know, things we sort of already know about. Because mm-hmm. that's how I kind of feel, and I know a lot of people are kind of pushing to have the original trilogy characters back and things like that, and I think I'm in the minority of the people that, would actually like to not see them back and just, you know, see, or if we do in a very, very small capacity. Yeah. So. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, if the past, you know, 30-some-odd years have taught us anything, is that there's plenty of stories to be told in this universe that don't necessarily need the, you know, the main characters and stuff. So there's a lot to be done. Yep. And a lot of cool. yeah, a lot of movies coming out. It sounds like it, it sounds like at least six they have planned. So yeah, it's so funny. Like I always took Lucas at his word that they weren't going to do the next trilogy, and so I was completely flabbergasted when they announced that it was coming. I I always figured they would come back to it eventually, just because it's such a money making franchise. Yeah, that eventually they would, but I didn't think it would be you know anywhere this soon. I thought maybe once my kids were kind of older. Yeah, but, but the fact that they're doing it in 2015 just that blew me away. I was like, really? Yeah. Like, but I think it's cool. I can't wait. I'm. I don't care if they stick to the EU or if they don't. I'm just excited that they're having new movies. Yeah, I'm psyched all over again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it'll be super fun. And I mean, I I kind of figured they'd always do it too, do the movies just because of the money making aspect. But when he sold it to Disney, I was like. That makes so much sense. (laughs) You know, and I was one of the only ones that thought that, but, you know, it didn't bother me because I'm such a huge Disney freak anyway, so I was just like, sweet. Yeah, it should be really cool. All right, Justin, well, we'll let you go. Awesome. I know we went a little bit longer because of the couple delays and stuff that we had, but...
Yeah, sorry about the technical difficulties. That's all right. No problem at all. We really appreciate your time. And uh, if you ever get a chance to write anything else for Star Wars, we'll definitely have you back on. What are you laughing at, Teresa? I just I just turned on my Skype. I haven't had it on. And I just found the conversation from the fifth that has Bethany and Riley in it. And I haven't read any of it. And I just saw something about somebody dancing around like Robin. I was <laughs> like, what? Oh, yeah, Dragon Con. Have you ever been to Dragon Con, Justin? No, I've never been. Okay. It's like apparently it's the party convention. If you want to go, if you want to go party at a convention, that's the one to go to. So that's what I hear. 